1: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other be people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to educate, but to teach and entertain. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC. Or tweet me at Jim Kramer. I'm with stupid. I'd love to wear one of those T-shirts on this show. With stupid being the market. Because it's like Wall Street gets a temporary lobotomy four times a year before earning seasons. Doesn't matter if it's an up day or down day, like today with Dow slipping 77 points, S&P down 0.17%, Nasdaq declining 0.13%. The market just keeps making stupid collective decisions, almost as moronic as collective farming. And even though it infuriates me, I spend all day seething and yelling at my screen, the market's idiocy? Well, let's just say it's your opportunity. Let me give you some prime examples of how this works, and then I'll give you one that's actionable right now. Buy, 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 buy. If you stay tuned, that's called a tease. A week ago, one of my absolute favorite companies, Home Despot, that's what I call it because it's such the power of the ruler. Home Depot reported a ridiculously positive upside surprise. The stock traded up three points in early morning trading. On well, Squawk the Street, though, I said that such a move would have to be unsustainable. So you had to wait until it pulled back to do some buying. I didn't want people to chase. I figured Home Depot would talk about how low housing turnover on the conference call would maybe, uh, you know, peas would say, listen, don't worry about it. But I think it would get people worried. And sure enough, you know what? Let's just say it gave you an opening, a brutal opening that day. See that? Right down. Well, you know, the call began, management turned defensive uh, pretty much, I'd say, two-thirds of the way through it with the questioning. And so many of the analysts focused on how hard it would be for Home Depot to make money now that we're in some sort of housing bear market, where not enough new homes are being built and not enough old homes are being sold. Hey, listen, it's true. But you see... It it, it shouldn't matter. It didn't matter that Home Depot earned $3.05 per share. street was looking for $2.84. It didn't matter that same-store sales was an amazing, astounding 8%, almost double versus last quarter, when the street was expecting much less than that. didn't matter that purchases over $1,000 made up 20% of sales. Hallelujah! Showing that contractors are hard at work refurbishing homes. Nah, these people only cared about housing and an oh-so-slight deceleration in Home Depot's forecasted gross margin. The gains were erased, then the stock quickly declined by two bucks. Yes, went actually went down. That's insane! And that would have been a great time to buy because Sanity re- returned a week later. Well, first, Toll Brothers, the usual luxury home builder, blew away the numbers, and that made it clear that housing really is alive and kicking. And now Home Depot stock is up nine bucks from its low the day it reported. Housing bear market? Maybe yesteryear? Yesterday, it was Lowe's turn. You know, Home Depot's competitor. The company reported a terrific set of numbers, but they weren't terrific enough. And the stock fell three points in early morning trading. As it happens, lows closed a division that wasn't really accounted for in the release. Then new CEO Marvin Ellison gave a resounding conference call, and the stock made up its earlier losses. At one point, it was up 10 points before closing up five. Today, it tacked on another buck and a half. We saw the same thing, same thing a few weeks ago when the bedraggled 3M reported a quarter that showed a nice acceleration from the not-so-hot numbers they gave us last time. We had unloaded some shares in 3M for my travel trust ahead of the quarter, fearing another you know, disappointing result. But when it came out, I said, oh, darn it, we were kicking and screaming because it finally looked like the stock could stabilize and advance. Decent numbers. Sure enough, 3M rallied up a couple of points in pre-market trading. And I railed at myself for being so darn stupid to sell some of the thing for the trust before the quarter was announced. As the conference call went on, though, 3M made a U turn and it started cratering. I was aghast. Eight straight points vaporized in a matter of minutes. Stock sinking to its 52 week low of 190. I was shocked. I was screaming. I was screaming, bye, 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 to anyone who was listening. Anyone who would listen, which of course was uh, no one. I was- Talking to myself. And then, like a great swimmer like Michael Phelps, 3M touched 190 in reverse, scrambling the 200 as fast as it went down. Mind you, this was on the identical set of facts. There was nothing new, not even an upgrade. Just people getting it wrong. And then, upon further review, deciding to circle back. Last week, you we got a totally obvious one. I about, talked about it here endlessly, one that was nonetheless excruciating, NVIDIA. This company that makes the fastest cri- chips for graphics, data centers, machine learning, and artificial intelligence have been telling everyone that you had to expect a steep drop-off in one of its business lines. Chips used to mine cryptocurrencies like Ethereum. Thing is, NVIDIA can't tell what its customers are using these chips for. It could be gaming, could be crypto, so they had no way to quantify the decline. Turns out it was steep, steeper than some expected, even as it didn't take a genius to see that the Ethereum market had practically vanished. Plus, NVIDIA had a difficult product transition going on where there might be a pause in the market as new, far more powerful chips are being introduced. The result? Despite all this being not just known, but kind of obvious and talked about here endlessly, the stock got annihilated and ended up closing down 12 points that day. You had bears growling all over the place that NVIDIA was, at last, after some amazing performance, dead. Dead as a doornail. Since then, the stock, though, what's it done? It's rebounded 22 points as, Envy, as NVIDIA showed off its new chips, which are incredible, much faster, and they run much cooler. Hey, you know what? Go back to the tape. That's precisely what CEO Jensen Wong told us we mad money to expect the last time he came on the show. Hit an all-time high today before reversing into the bill. You had to buy the shares of this amazing company, the one that's envied by nearly everyone in Silicon Valley, right into the teeth of the decline. And then buy them again when Andrew left. A noted short seller with a very big megaphone popped up on a bunch of media outlets and laid out what I can only call an ill-informed short case. He later told Melissa Lee on last night's Fast Money that he covered most of his short position. Hmm. Okay, best for last. One that I think you can pounce on now that you've heard me give you this complete list of when you should have bought and how you would have done. I'm giving you the one that you can take action on tomorrow. All right. Get this down. I want you to write it down. I am talking about Children's Place, P-L-C-E, okay? This, this stock was down today after a beautiful quarter, double-digit same-store sales, fantastic plan to take on its ailing competitors like Jim Boree, great assortment, fabulous sourcing. The CEO, Jane Elfers, is one of our faves. We interviewed her earlier this year in Florida, where she traced out a solid omni-channel plan and explained how she could take on all comers, and that's exactly what she's doing with a bold play. But it didn't matter. This time, the naysayers were focused on why Children's Place isn't making even more money per share. They didn't even care that some of it had to do with promotional selling the omnichannel business. Totally explicable. They, didn't, they certainly didn't listen to how, uh, hear about how she's shifting quickly from Chinese manufacturing to the point where even the $500 billion tariff figure won't do much damage to the bottom line. Rather than fo- focusing on her marvelous 13% same-store sales, growth, I, I, I thought it was a typo, or her plan to decimate the competition and take permanent market share in a, in a country all, uh, that it does not have a, a, a great birth rate, frankly, all the analysts could focus on was the potential for weaker gross margins. It was like being on the Home Depot conference call all over again. And there's the rub, people. Home Depot stock rallied hard in pre-market trading and then did that swan dive that turned into a belly flop. The shares of Children's Place, which closed down a buck 75, was up huge at the opening, just like Home Depot. It did the exact same pattern, and that's what I'm telling you. Get ready. The bottom line. A week later, we can't even see the decline in the chart of Home Depot. You know what? I think the same exact thing could happen to the stock of Jane Elfer's Children's Place. Diana in California. Diana. Hi, Jim. My stock is Horizon Pharmaceutical. It has gone up
0: a lot in the last couple of months. They beat on earnings per share by 17 cents and beat on revenue. It was recommended many moons ago by
2: USA Spec. I'm finally close to even. Do I hold or do I
1: Sell, sell, sell. Sell. Take your profit. we got some really incredibly high-quality drug companies that are are for sale. I'd rather have you roll into one of those. Let's go to Linda in Illinois. Linda.
3: Yeah, hi, Jim. This is Linda from Chicago.
1: How are you? Uh, Good. Since the FDA has recently approved Tandem, symbol TNDM, the insulin pump for diabetics, it has continually been spiking up. Actually one
3: thousand percent in six months. The only competitor is Medtronics, who does presently have an insulin pump on the market. However, Tandem has some extra features and is also a slimline. And they have already paid off their debt ahead of schedule. Jim, I'm looking if you look at
0: the fundamentals, do you feel that this stock can keep growing at
1: the same rate. I talk about this stock a lot at the office and I talk about Dexcom, which is another we really like. I, I, felt, I felt very badly that I have not featured Tandem Diabetes because I've been talking about the epidemic of diabetes for some time, but you do have a good one. Brad in New Hampshire. Brad. Hey, how's it going, Jeff? I think it's going real well. How about you? I'm real great. Hey, I'm a marketing specialist in New Hampshire, and I took notice of Planet Fitness from Dover, New Hampshire. There was a few local owners that i talked to about the business model and i started buying stock as a result of those conversations my question for you is is a dividend expected like 2016 and what's your opinion both on the short and long term of the stock generally well you know we had the company on i had been skeptical and after sitting down with the ceo i felt darn good about the business plan and i love the way that remember you have like pizza night there it is no it is not just a place where if you're not in great shape you feel like a dope. I think it's got a good business model, a good plan and there's a lot room for a lot more and I like it. All right, sometimes this market is stupid. I'm with stupid. It makes stupid decisions. Stupid, stupid, stupid. But if you have the patience for stupid, you can and will make some money. On Mad Money Tonight, William sonoma just designed an impressive earnings beat. Despite the odds, I'll talk to you through the quarter. Then, are we living in some sort of alternate reality? No, I'm not talking about the latest headlines out of Washington. I'm focused on the recent moves in AMD and Intel. And what's the ultimate tell for the natural gas industry? I've got Tellurian founder, Sharif Suki, to see what's ahead. And boy, has he ever made us a lot of, a lot of money. So may I suggest... In the business of stock picking, buy, buy, buy. You're always searching for a totem, something that can help clarify your thinking about a particular industry. In retail, that totem is Williams-Sonoma. <laughs> Last night, the furniture and home goods purveyor reported pretty much the perfect quarter in a moment filled with excellent reports. So many of them that it's easier to say which retailers didn't blow away the expectations. JCPenney and L Brands, both of which seem like they're caught up in some sort of time warp. Now, we know retail's had a series of unrelenting challenges over the past few years a strapped consumer, rising raw costs, Amazon, and now the president's obsession with slapping tariffs on all sorts of merchandise from China. Intellectually, it seems like it should be too much for retail, which was supposed to wilt under these pressures. I think that when I look at the myriad short positions that bets against retailers, they become crowded. Meaning these stocks have way too many people betting against them for all the reasons I just mentioned. Sell, 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 sell. And few retailers more heavily bet against than Williams-Sonoma with 24% of the float sold short. That's huge. Why not? Strike one, it sells furniture, a dead category for ages. Strike two, it can't compete with Amazon on the scale that the Seattle giant offers. Strike three, it has tremendous freight costs, something that's been a principal cause of shortfalls. Strike four, it has a heavy mall presence, in an era where the mall isn't exactly thriving either, (laughs) unless you're talking about particular strip malls, which is definitely not Williams-Sonoma. Finally, strike five, a huge percentage of the world's furniture is made in China, and the president's about to put on a 25% tariff on imports of that furniture. Theoretically, that was supposed to be way too much for William sonoma and its management team, led by CEO Laura Alber, to handle. Right? Wrong! The company delivered stellar numbers with ex- accelerating growth, fantastic comps, across all of its many brands, from Pottery Barn to West Elm, to the flagship William sonoma at least on a two-year stack basis. And that's how the stock could rally a glorious 16% today, or $10.33. of their business is online. That is by far its most lucrative channel, by some metrics, over three times more lucrative because it's so well-honed and isn't hampered by brick-and-mortar costs. The web just makes it so much cheaper to do business. We've heard endlessly about the rising cost of freight and how it would force stores to raise prices, causing them to lose sales. On the call, the analysts who brought up this issue seem mystified by how management could avoid this painful topic. So management told us, well, they've adjusted. They said they came up with supply chain efficiencies, and I quote, that completely offset it, end quote. Basically, something that's felled many a company this quarter did not hurt Williams-Sonoma. The tariffs, 15% of the company's cost of goods sold would be hit by the $200 billion in tariffs the president's currently proposed. Sounds bad? Wait. Williams-Sonoma on the ball. They're moving production out of China because they have multi-country supply chain. The loser from these tariffs won't be the American consumer. It will be those Chinese furniture factories. Finally, the big drawback with virtual uh, furniture is virtualization. My wife had a tip for the West Elm manager recently when she wasn't allowed to take a chair 440 yards to her home in New Jersey to see what it would look like. She decided not to buy the table and chairs. That was a big cha- sale loss for that store that day. Now she wouldn't have to take the turn at your home. She could just visualize it using Williams-Sonoma's fabulous software. A brick and mortar? Here's how Albert explained it to us. When you go into a store and it's wonderful, it's, it's, um, it helps you make the purchase. And we see our best customers cross-channel.
3: Um, and there's a lot of people just online. There's a lot of people just focused on big stores. We are focused on both because we know that's how you shop.
1: They're using the good stores as showrooms. The bad ones are being closed aggressively. Why have an unprofitable store in this day and age? Finally, they've added a robust loyalty campaign across all the major brands, and that's likely drawing in more repeat customers. In short, Williams-Sonoma answered every single objection, which is why it's the perfect totem for what's working at this very moment In retail right now, much more mad money ahead, including my take on two tech titans. What the performances from AMD and Intel can tell tell us about the overall tech sector. Then Sharif Suki is considered an energy oracle. What does he have to say about the sector these days? I've got the exclusive. And with L Brands dropping due to weakness of Victoria's Secret, I'm talking to a private company challenging the bra behemoth. So stick with Kramer. What's up, everybody? I'm Graham Bunn. So excited to introduce you to Country Shine, where we're talking all things country music.
3: That's right, and I'm Cameron Irwin, co host and resident country girl at Tinseltown, here to welcome you to the family. Every Tuesday, we'll update you on the latest in country music, culture, and community.
1: And on Fridays, I'll bring on country musicians and all the biggest names in the
0: game.
3: It's a gathering, and we want you here.
0: You can listen to Country Shine with me, Graham Bunn, for free right here on Spotify.
1: Lately, I've heard a lot of people say that we must be living in some sort of bizarro parallel universe. Now, usually, of course, they talk about politics. But if you ask me, the best evidence that we've entered a weird alternate reality, or maybe even the Matrix, is the simple fact that we live in a world where AMD has now become a better investment than Intel. If you'd asked me that, uh, whether that was possible at 3, uh, 5, 10, five, 20, even 30 years ago, I would have accused, accused you of blasphemy. In the old days, this company was such a loser that Intel would actually go out of its way to help AMD stay afloat. It's kind of like a big leap to show that the antitrust regulators, that they weren't a monopoly. For the better part of this decade, AMD was a troubled company with a $2 stock. Intel was the bluest of the blue-chip semiconductor names. The idea that AMD might be a better buy, well, let's just say that would have been laughable. AMD had always been second fiddle to Intel in the processor market. They were second fiddle to NVIDIA in the graphics chip market. You had to be crazy to prefer AMD. Boy, oh boy, has that changed. So far this year, AMD stock has more than doubled. Intel, it's up less than 2% percent year to date. And frankly, AMD's story has been a lot more exciting than Intel's for a while now. Three years ago, this stock was trading at a buck and change. Now it's over 22 bucks. That's giving you a 1,000-plus... Game, fifteen times the return from Intel over the same period. Who says you can't own individual stocks? Who single stock risk of AMD at a buck? It's gotten even more pronounced over the past few months as AMD stock keeps exploding higher. It rose six point six five percent today to a new high. Intel started getting slammed earlier this summer. And so how the heck did this happen? How the heck did AMD manage to supplant the great and all-powerful Intel? All right, there's really two different stories here. So let's start with the rise of AMD. This This has been many years in the making. In October of 2014, after struggling for years, the company's old CEO stepped down and Dr. Lisa Su, previously the chief operating officer, took the helm. The balance sheet was a mess. The company was getting eaten alive by Intel in the PC business and shown up by Nvidia in the gaming business, and the old management team had been in denial. Four years ago, Intel was the company reporting blowout quarters, and AMD gave us numbers so bad that the stock would lose 15% in a single session. That's when Sue took over. A week later, AMD announced a targeted restructuring plan designed to aggressively cut costs. Then she had set about fixing everything else. Thing is, it can take years to design cutting-edge new products in the semiconductor business. Turnarounds take, this time, take a lot of time. This one has, though, finally started to pay off, and here's how she did it. First, Sue changed the company's whole strategy. For most of its existence, AMD was kind of an also-ran semiconductor company by choice. They'd make commodity chips and then undercut the competition on price. Given that AMD had been losing ridiculous amounts of market share for years, the brilliant, hard-charging Sue recognized that this was a lousy business model. Instead, she wanted to compete with Intel and with NVIDIA on quality by designing better chips and releasing new iterations more frequently. They had, of course, fixed the balance sheet to do that, and that's what was her job one. Second, she decided to expand AMD's total addressable market, or TAM, by breaking into the data center, doubling down on gaming chips. What a business that is now, and betting on virtual reality. Those are all three red-hot growth markets. Needless to say, it worked. Last year, AMD rolled out their new family of processors for the PC called Ryzen, R-Y-Z-E-M, and these chips were arguably better than Intel's. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. I read the specs. I, 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 I got schooled. I got schooled in on this one. They're taking share in desktops, in laptops, in enterprise computing. Just last week, AMD launched a new version that they claim is the world's most powerful desktop processor. Oh, and Lisa Su's timing here was brilliant. They launched these chips just as the PC market started making a major comeback after spending years in the doldrums. How about graphics chips for gaming? A year ago, AMD launched a new line of graphics processors called Vega, and they've done surprisingly well against NVIDIA. And just like NVIDIA, AMD's graphics chips do more than plant pretty, uh, than paint pretty digital pictures. You know, that's one of the rap, is It's just for gaming. Uh-uh. These are used for the data center. They're used for machine learning, too. Speaking of the data center, They've gone from having no real presence at all to taking this market by storm. AMD server processors are now being used by Baidu, by Microsoft's Azure, remember that's their cloud business, and Tencent. Those are three of the seven top cloud producer, providers. The result, in 2015, AMD sales were shrinking. Last year, they grew at a 25% clip. Last quarter, they increased by 53 percent. That's a magnificent accelerating revenue growth, or ARG. Computer and graphic sales were up 64 percent. The enterprise business up 37 percent. Can you believe these percentages I'm giving you? The company swung to a profit last year. It's now posting impressive earnings growth. In other words, Dr. Lisa Sue is a miracle worker. No, she's the miracle worker. Now, what's happened to Intel? Okay, first of all, a few years ago, when Intel owned the moribund PC market, they decided to start diversifying away from the personal computer. They wanted more exposure to the data center and autonomous driving, so they acquired Altera for the former and Mobileye for the latter. And look, this is not a bad strategy. The Mobileye deal, in particular, I find is genius. division is now growing at a 37% clip. But because Intel took their eye off the ball in the PC business, it became clear that AMD has leapfrogged them with its latest products. That matters. Personal computers still make up half of Intel's sales, not only has AMD taking share, they've begun to put pressure on Intel's gross margins. Meanwhile, Intel's experienced a series of delays for a major new product, their next-generation processors. Not good. Those chips were supposed to come out in 2016, but that got pushed back to 2019 because the company had trouble producing them efficiently. efficiently. Mm. Oh, let's not forget the security issue. At the beginning of the year, we found out some of uh, Intel's processors had a flaw that left them vulnerable to hackers, giving AMD a major opening. Some people feel like it slowed down the power of their chips. Finally, there's what I really regret here. Uh, the unfortunate business with Intel's now former CEO, Brian Krasanich, turns out he once had a consensual relationship with a coworker, which violated company policy. So he stepped down. See, here's the problem, though. Krasanich was a great CEO, an engineer who was trying to return Intel to his glory days. He had a plan. He was executing that plan. And with him gone, there's now... I, what I call a leadership vacuum, and that is no offense to interim CEO Bob Swan, but we do need to see a permanent CEO at Intel before things can stabilize. And I don't know if they, they can find someone who can do the job better than Krizanich, whom I thought was terrific. So what do we do with these two stocks going forward? Okay, Intel does have one thing going for it. I mean, <laughs> that AMD certainly doesn't. It is dirt cheap. Intel sells for a piddling 11 times next year's earnings estimates. That is just that's crazy, frankly. AMD looks a little more expensive. It sells for 35 times next year's numbers. But wait a second. Valuation gets more reasonable when you look at the out years, like I always tell you to do. It's only trading 25 times the 2020 earnings estimates. That's not bad for a growth stock. AMD is expensive for a reason because it is growing like like wildfire. Intel's a value stock. Over the next three years, the company expects to give us a 73% compound annual growth rate at AMD. I know some money managers who pay 60 times earnings for that kind of growth. So 35 times earnings is uh, relationally, uh, I would say, pretty much in the mix. It's kind of a bargain. Intel, on the other hand, has a 10% long-term growth rate. Uh, The fact that it's selling 11 times earnings, I find a little absurd. It's got a 2.55% dividend yield. The bottom line Thanks to the remarkable turnaround, which of course started first with the balance sheet and then the engineering now the great sales, masterminded by Dr. Lisa Su, AMD has transformed itself into a fabulous growth business, and I bet its stock still has more room to run. Most of all, Su's hungrier than ever. She never stops working. Intel, you can never count out a company with a storied history and a great balance sheet. But without new leadership and stronger chip offerings for now, I fear this amazing company will stay second fiddle to the underdog team that it routinely crushed for decades on end. Let's go to Jude in Kentucky, please. Jude. Hello, Jim. My big blue Calipari. Booyah to you. And thanks for helping me retire early. There you go. <laughs> then we did good. We did good. I got to maybe help myself to retire early eventually, like when I'm 90, two years younger than Pop. What's up?
3: The rating agency all maintained Micron technology at a buy, and I bought it at 53 and change, and it's been downhill ever since. My concern is, should I buy more uh, okay, Mike, at this uh, level, or should Mike I Ryan sell at four, I my shirt? Micron is the cheapest
1: you. stock in the SP 500. It sells at four times earnings, 4.2 times next year's earnings. Um, I simply That tells me that people think they can't make the number. The numbers have to come down. That's because of the flash, not because of DRAM. But I would not sell it here. Um, and I, Dwight, I would buy more when it ticks back down to the 48 level, uh, get a better basis. It is a great company. Now we're going to Michael in New York, please. Michael. Booyah, Jim. How are you? I am good. How about you?
2: I'm very good, thanks. Uh, I've been, my portfolio, portfolio has become an M&A mess. What's the matter? Thanks to you, White, White Wave was a hit. Yes. I'm, I have Fox and Disney. I'm involved in that. The Arkella-Arkella re, the reverse split killed me. But now I'm talking about Oclaro and Momentum. So basically... It's valued at 9.54. It's a 35% share in the combined stock of Lumentin. Right. Is it worth
0: holding out for lumentin? No, no, no.
1: We're gonna, know We're gonna ka-ching, ka-ching that one. And you, since you follow me closely, you know ActionWordsPlus.com. At what I say for the club, I actually say, listen, buy some Alphabet. I did a great web webinar yesterday with my friend Mark Chakin, Chicken Money Flow. We both agreed that Alphabet is the cheapest of the big guns. I'd rather have you own that. Okay, I'm giving kudos right now to AMD's Lisa Su for turning the company on. Yeah, she came on Squawk on the street when the stock was about half of what it was and said, now it is time. Much more of Money ahead. Natural gas space has been punished as people worry about tensions with China. But are the worries warranted? I'm sitting down with the only man I know who trusts and would know, and that is Sheree fine Yeah, remember him, right, from Chenier? Now he's got a new one. Uh, find out what he's seen in the space. Then h- how a private player could benefit from Victoria's Secret, wow, which you know is owned by Elbrand Stumbles, and all your calls, Rapid Fire, tonight's edition of The Nighting Round! You don't get to witness the birth of a brand new industry every day. But in the last few years, we've seen something extraordinary. The creation of a totally new kind of business that has nothing to do with Silicon Valley. I'm talking about the liquefied natural gas export space. Two years ago, Schneer Energy started its first liquefied natural gas, or LNG, shipments. This year, Dominion Energy opened their own facility, and there's more in development, including from Telluran. That's the company founded by Sharif Suki. He's the guy who pretty much invented this business, and he was run engineer and when it all got started. I think he's the father of what may turn out to be the greatest export boom in our nation's history. I'm not kidding. These projects require a massive amount of infrastructure and They take years to build, but the demand for them is off the charts. As I said many times, the United States is overflowing with cheap natural gas, and the rest of the world is desperate to get its hands on it. And that's why Sharif's company is building its own LNG terminals while also investing in natural gas pipelines and even production. Now, lately, the people are worried about whether the Chinese are going to refuse to take the natural gas. You know what? I don't care. I want to speak to Sharif Suki. He is going to tell us what the real story is. Sharif, come on in. Jim. All right. All right. See you again. You are co founder, you are chairman now of Tellurian. You're not the CEO, but that doesn't matter because you're the man who knows more about this industry. I'm going to ask you point blank if the Chinese say no to our LNG, what does it mean? Does that mean you will not be able to build? Does that mean this industry is over?
2: They cannot say no. It's a commodity. And the molecules don't come with a print on them that says made in America. So it's very simple to put them on the market, and then it will go wherever the price is. If they impose tariffs on American gas, all it means is that we'll receive different gas, and it will just be substituted. So, so it, why— it is not a big, It's not a big deal. No,
1: no you see, because I've read a half dozen articles that have told me that your industry dead.
2: No. Well, how we, we have so the sure? cheapest gas in the world. And the, as you pointed out, the rest of the world needs it in a variety of different ways. The, the trick is to make sure that we keep it affordable and attractively priced for the rest of the world.
1: OK, this new business model you have, you're buying a lot of acreage because you think natural gas has come down a great deal. You have told me that we flare more natural gas than we use, that this is an exceptional time to get in your business. But you are also offering huge stakes to companies. Uh, Big, big money that they have to put in. Any
2: takers? Plenty. Really? Yes. Even though this is a a, five-year process? It's extremely simple. If you propose an attractive business proposition, people will take it. There is no shortage of capital on a global basis. There is no shortage of capital in the United States. But
1: explain to people how much this is. This is not a billion-dollar
2: project. Well, but remember, at year we raised $30 billion. And when we started the process, we were almost bankrupt. This but time but you ended up ahead. making a fortune for everybody. Yes, but this time we're setting ahead. At least we don't have any debt uh, looming right, in the next two right. or three years.
1: Now, the project you have is gigantic. The number of trains, as we call them. You are doing something that's far more ambitious than you did at Chenier.
2: No, no, it's exactly the same. It, this really? This is pretty much going to be but the same. But phase
1: one is gigantic.
2: Yes. Cherie, phase one is huge. It's 16 million tons. And how much does that cost? And what we did at Sabine Pass was 21 million tons. So put it in perspective, it's not so hard. We've done it before.
1: Now, uh, when you talk about uh, it's, you're saying Tellurian plans to have its driftwood holdings, more than that, uh, acquire 5 trillion cubic feet of natural gas reserves for phase one. You're acquiring it. Yes. You're not just, you're not leasing it. You're actually, so what are you doing? Are you buying up as we speak? Are you buying up properties all over the Southeast?
2: Not yet. We've looked at everything that there is. There is no huge rush for us. At the moment, if you had your choice, the pipelines are more important than owning the reserves because you can go to the Permian Basin and pick up gas. You know, you know an incredible number right now? No. We are now flaring $300 million a day in the Permian Basin. That's, like enough to, that's enough to, to power how much of Europe? It's a pretty significant piece, and it puts us in, in, at risk of becoming one of the world's largest flares of natural gas Why? on a global basis. I, well,
1: this is just, Which is terrible pollution. We need your plant. Why are we not going to the Germans and saying, OK, stop it with gas prompt? We have got the natural gas. You, you stopped those contracts in 2023. We've got it, and you're going to use our natural gas. What Does the president not understand that?
2: No, they understand it very Do well. They? And I think two of his cabinet members, including your old buddy, Larry Kudlow, has, he likes uh, the show. have actually both, uh, him and Steve Mnuchin have both said, uh, we are prepared to sell natural gas, LNG, to Europe.
1: Do they speak oh. to you? No. Why not?
2: Because this is America. I'm in a, I'm a businessman. I'm not a politician. I right. will sell my gas to the people who pay me the most for it.
1: Okay, so it, when you started this, there was no market for this. Now there's an actual spot market that you can sell into.
2: I, I think, uh, yes. When we started Chenier, the business was mostly point-to-point. And what we did at Chenier is allowed the spot market to start developing pretty significantly. Right. And now the spot market is becoming very important. So, the natural gas is becoming like other commodities. It is traded on natural gas prices on a global basis. One last question.
1: Many of the people that I speak to say there are way too many projects on the drawing board and it's going to come to naught.
2: Well, you know, every project is not the same. We've been very deliberate about developing our project very. Uh, carefully and making sure we understand our costs and we understand our opportunities. We're on schedule. We are going to be finished with our program by the end of the year. But this was, you have to make sure your costs are right, you have to work with people you trust like Bechtel and GE. Uh, You have to put all the pieces in place, you have to hire the right people to do it. We now have 165 people working at Tellurian through a startup. And most of these people come from either Chenier or BG. They used to work either with me or with my partner, Martin Houston. So we have a lot of experience.
1: This man sat here when, the stock was at, when his old company stock was at 8 bucks. It's probably the greatest hit that we've ever had other than Salesforce and Regeneron. This man, Sharif Sugi, co-founder and chairman of Tellurian. Now, just so you know, Tellurian is publicly traded, okay? It wasn't the first time we saw him. T-E-L-L. Man, money's back there for you right now. It is time for the light round conclusion. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Skate? Daddy, time for the lightning round my. I'm starting with Michael in the bottom. Michael.
3: A big fly, eagle fly, booyah. Oh, go birds, hey, No one with the hey, falcons outfit's near I me. You, I'm
1: sorry. Go ahead. Hey, I saw your webinar concerning uh, with uh, Mark Chalkin yesterday, and I wanted to say I really was very impressed oh, with all you. your stock picks. Well, look, uh, what's uh, your stock? Yeah, my question concerns that uh, stock that y'all were high on, but a little fooling off now. I took a position in CNC. 10 teen, and I'm not oh. sure if I should add All more. All right, well, Michael, i got to tell you, you know, both Mark Chaykin and that, that webinar is available online if you go to the street. But both he and I felt that it was a great stock, but it may have run too much too fast. I would hold on to I mean, if it pullback, back then. Bye, bye, but bye. otherwise, no. I need to go to Mike in New York. Mike! Booyah! Booyah! Figure symbol G-S-K-E. Uh, transportation. You know what? We are using XPO Logistics. Brad Jacobs, yeah, that was another name that Jake liked yesterday. I think XPO is a much better buy. Let's go to Larry in New York. Larry. Uh, hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. The stock I wanted to ask you about is Briggs and Stratton. Hey, look. You see that quarter? They just did a really good quarter. I was very proud of them. You know, they come on. Stock <laughs> was down, but they put together some good numbers. I think it's the first of many. Let's go to Jim in California. Jim.
3: Hello there. This is Jim.
1: Okay. Go ahead. You're up. It's Jim.
0: I've had Oracle for over a decade, and it was one of the goodies.
1: Oracle. Okay, look, Oracle's an inexpensive stock. I just am in search of a catalyst. Salesforce reports next week. I'm in not search of a catalyst. I think it's going to be a good quarter. Let's go to Jerry in Pennsylvania. Jerry. Hey, Jim. How you doing, buddy? Uh, Real
0: good. How about you, partner? I'm doing good. I'm from the Still City. Hey, I'm asking about Cleveland Cliffs CLF. Oh, man, today. how
1: many iterations have been through with Cliffs? But you know what? I think it's time is coming. and so, so, It's had so, a really, so, nice, so, so, really so. nice run. I want you to kaching, kaching. Let's go to Charlie in Pennsylvania. Stay with Pennsylvania. Charlie. Jim, have been watching you for over 12 years now. Your financial acumen, I have become a quasi-master of the universe. I am eternally grateful. Okay. man, I hope I live up to that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let, What's up? Oh. God bless you. Looking at a stock with rising earnings, a recently raised dividend, and I think it should do well with with rates that ascend in the near term. That stock I'm looking at is a regional bank, community bank systems. What do you think, Jim? Community bank systems is is not that expensive, um, but it is an unusual situation that it's up a great deal this year. I I will defer and suggest you wait for that to come down. It's had too big a run. Uh, we will take another one. We'll go to Steve in New York. Steve. Hey John, how you doing? My question is Eros International, they reported earnings today and your thoughts on a buyout from Amazon. Okay, I have not done the work. Uh, I can't opine on it. I've got to do more work. It's a company from India, so I have more work to do rather than cuff it. Let's take one more. Let's go to John in New York. John. Oh, Joni, Joni, Joni. Hey. Go ahead. <laughs>
3: It's Joni, Joni in Rochester, New York. Okay. Hi, Jim. Okay, searching for a uh, value stock with an okay dividend and
1: came across ALI Financial. You're viewing this stock. Please. Yeah, it's a value stock, but I, I, I I'm not going to go there. I don't want to be in the automotive financial services. I'd rather have you be in fintech. I'd rather have you see in Visa. I'd rather see you in Mastercard. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
3: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
1: Last night, L Brand slashed its guidance, dragged down by weakness of Victoria's Secret. Stock got tossed in the wood chipper. It lost more than 11% today. Nearly every other apparel retailer with halfway competent management has been making a killing here. So why does Victoria's Secret keep struggling? Have bras gone out of style? Seems unlikely. Maybe this particular brand simply lost its cachet. Sometimes to understand a particular industry, we need to go off the tape and check in with privately held companies that are using technology to disrupt their competitors. When it comes to women's underwear, that's Third Love. Here's a company that sells custom-fitted bras along with loungewear and nightwear. To the gentlemen in the audience, you might not know this, but for many women, finding a comfortable bra that actually fits can be a nightmare. So Third Love rolled out a mobile app which lets women take pictures of themselves at home and then uses machine learning to figure out the best size. They're also the first company to use half sizes, Half sizes, which is a huge deal. That's 30% of all women need them. That's why Third Love's been growing like crazy. In fact, this startup is already profitable. So let's take a closer look with Heidi Zach. She's the co founder and CEO of Third Love, who's upending the entire bra industry. Ms. Zach, welcome to Mad Money. Thanks for having me. Okay, Heidi, most of our audience skews toward men. Yeah. And uh, for me, I said, when I saw this, I said, half size, what's the big deal? But my most of my, of my staff skews women. And they said, Jim, nobody else has half sizes. How can that be? And how'd you think of it?
3: Well, we use data, so we collect a lot of data, and what we saw is a lot of women were falling in between traditional cup sizes. And if you think about it, shoes have half sizes, obviously, so why shouldn't bras? And that's really how it came about. It's very hard for a brick-and-mortar retailer as well to carry half sizes because it would be a lot more skews for them.
1: Okay, now this is important. How many do you have, and why
3: can you carry so many? So we have over 70 sizes. To put that in perspective, Victoria's Secret has 36, so we have more than double.
1: All right. Now, uh, on uh, March of this year, March 30th, Leslie Wexner, yep. founder of uh, Victoria's Secret, gave an interview to, to the Financial Times. He was asked, I talked uh, by the journalist, the predi- about the predictive power of data and algorithms. Um, he pooh-poohed the relevance. He said that he was just dismissive and it didn't really matter. How do you feel about that?
3: Um, so I disagree I think we've built our business using data and data drives all the decisions we make so from product development inventory management marketing personalization we use data to create segments of customers and then use really targeted marketing to speak to each individual woman Could
1: that be in part because of the couple of years you spent at Google?
3: Perhaps it might be or at MIT <laughs> that too
1: <laughs> okay so where are we in terms of um, what people are willing to spend? Uh, because we've just gone through a period where we have found that apparel spend is the single hottest area of all mm-hmm. areas in America. You seeing the same thing?
3: Absolutely. I think there's a real focus on quality and consumers, consumers demanding quality. And so that's what we really focus on at Third Love. We're certainly not the most, the cheapest bra you're going to find, right. but it's really high quality and it's going to last. And that's what women really want. All right. Now, how about
1: the way? I, again, I'm conscious I am. I don't want to be sexist, but women who shop, uh, it seems like it's a tougher thing to go shop and try on a bra than, say, uh, we had Victor Luis on recently. Go get a handbag, Uh, go get shoes, which uh, size don't change. That cuts in your favor, doesn't it?
3: Absolutely. So I think there's no women out there that say, you know what I want to do on a Saturday afternoon? I want to go bra shopping. No woman wants to do that. So when I started the company, it was really about convenience and building an amazing online experience. And so that's really what we focused on.
1: OK, but are there not some people who are not Look, you use the selfie method. Well, I mean, that seems it seems to me that it seems mentally invasive, isn't it?
3: Um, so what we actually have is a Fit Finder. The app was okay. something we had in the early days. Today, we have a Fit Finder. A woman answers 10 to 12 questions in under 60 seconds. And using the data we collect and algorithms we've developed internally, we'll recommend her size down to the half cup and the style meant for her body. And so we're using all that data, and we get smarter. With every woman who does the Fit Finder, we become smarter and smarter. We've had over 10 million women do our Fit Finder. All right, then
1: tell me, with 10 million women? Um, is women. there a wait list to get your product?
3: Uh, so we launched 25 new sizes in June. We had close to a million and a half women on a wait list for all these new sizes. And I get asked the question, you know, how did you figure out what new sizes to launch in bras? We looked at the data. The top 25 sizes, we developed those, we launched those, and we sold out in under 30 days. That's yeah. Yeah.
1: Now, uh, Leslie Wexner is... Uh, it says, often says that men don't ever go to Victoria's Secret uh, to pick up bras except for a valent- right before Valentine's Day and right before Christmas. Yeah. Are you having any men customers for women?
3: We do. It's a small percent of our sales as well, but we absolutely, you know, a lot of times men will hear about our company and say, you know what, I hear my girlfriend, wife, sister complain right. about bras, and then they'll actually buy, buy them a gift card and, and tell them to check us out. So.
1: Okay, and yeah. w- about, last question, where do you source? Um, Asia, yes. But China? Um, yes. How quickly can you shift out of China?
3: <laughs> We're working on it.
1: Uh, it. How much is because it would be there will be a tariff. Yeah. How 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 much percentage is China?
3: Um, about half right now. All right. How yep. quickly
1: can you get out of? There?
3: We're working on it. All right. Very good.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. You're not a public company. I'm not going to press you on that. That's Heidi Zach. She's the th- third love co-founder and co CEO. Look what she's done. We got Victoria's Se- Secret going right down and her going right up. That money's back in. Right? I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow!
0: Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at pimco.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing.